The Near Futurist, a podcast with Guy Clapperton. Hello, and thanks for streaming The Near Futurist, a show presented by me, Guy Clapperton. This week, we're going to cover a topic that's really taking off, drones and their regulation. I said drones and taking off. It's funny because it's drones and... Oh, never mind. Regular listeners might remember I generally start by offering to moderate conferences and speak at them, and people have invited me to do so. It's been fun. But at the moment, even as we emerge from lockdown, the prospects of sitting in a large audience are daunting to a great many, and that's having a huge impact on the industry. I'm still presenting and offering masterclasses though, so if your job means you need to do press interviews or you want help with online presentation skills, you can find me at remotemediatraining.com. I've been a technology journalist for over 30 years and I know where the traps are, and I've been training remotely for over 10 years. But never mind about me, let's get to my guest for the day, who is an expert on the UAS industry, the founder and CEO of Drone Management Systems, ANRA Technologies. He sits on the board of the Global Unmanned Traffic Management Association, that's the GUTMA, and is a member of the FAA Drone Action Committee, DAC, UTM Working Group. His company is heavily involved with all the NASA and FAA drone integration pilot projects in the US, UTM deployment in India, as well as the UK Department for Transport and the UK Innovation Agency for Autonomous Systems, Connected Places Catapult. His name is Amit Ganju. Amit, welcome. Thank you, Guy. It's a pleasure being here with you today. That's great. Now, I've done my usual thing of cutting and pasting your intro from what I was sent, so thank you very much to your uh, colleagues. But if we could get through a few of those initials, at least, for people like me and get an idea of what your specialist areas are, that'd be great. We actually come at this industry from inside out versus outside in. So we are not an external player that got excited with the drones and them buzzing around and seeing them in media and trying to create a solution for it. We actually came and our team grew up in this industry. We are a team of folks from aviation, robotics, and communications background, having worked in the defense arena. As you know, drones are relatively new in the commercial space. Uh, I say relatively loosely there. But in the uh, defense arena, they've been used for many decades. So we have And as the team saw the transition happening from the defense to commercial side, we had some ideas, we filed some patents, got some awards, and then we came in. And so we knew what the problems were. So we were not a solution looking for a problem. There was a problem that we as a team solved, and that's how we got started in this industry. Unmanned Aerial Systems, UAS, as you say, uh, exactly, this means drones. What are the main applications we should be seeing at the moment? You've mentioned the commercial sector, for example. In the commercial sector, uh, there are some feel-good use cases uh, and there are some commercial use cases. So where we see, if we look at where actually we see a huge uptake and there's a business case, we see commercial uh, infrastructure inspection, uh, energy segment, power utility industry and construction. Those are the areas where we see a huge uptake in drones and we see return on investments. Then there are other use cases like agriculture and others, but the return on investment may not be to that extent as you see in other industries. So the biggest ticket items we feel right now, like I'll summarize again, is like critical infrastructure, energy segments and construction, those three. Outside of that, on the feel-good use cases, you have the humanitarian aspects, and specifically with COVID coming around, it's come to the like front and center. It's become the highlight. So deliveries beyond visual line of sight, deliveries for uh, 
packages, both food and medical deliveries. Uh, long-term, we see a higher uptake on like anything that has a humanitarian aspect of it, like uh, medical deliveries to remote areas or quarantined areas. And then food delivery will follow soon after that. Drones, of course, covers quite a wide area. I've had a look on Amazon, and it seems that for £20, I'm in the UK, I can have a drone of my own. I'm just wondering what I can and can't do with it legally, why I'd want one, and indeed why it actually differs from those radio-controlled airplanes I used to get for Christmas and crash into trees when I was about seven. Obviously, you're talking about the industrial stage of things, but this idea that there could be loads of these things flying around available to consumers as well sounds like a recipe for chaos. First, let me answer your question, because I, growing up, I used to build these RC-controlled airplanes as well for a hobby and fly them around. The difference, the key difference between an RC-controlled airplane and a drone is that an RC-controlled aircraft, you fly. And if you take an RC-controlled aircraft and put an autopilot in it and it flies by itself, that's what makes it a drone. That's the Got simplest difference you. between the two. Of course, that means that, you know, there are these small drones, uh, some of them used by people like photographers, I'm wondering, and they take pictures. I'm wondering whether there are privacy concerns, and I'm getting towards the idea of how we actually regulate this thing. Before I get to that question, I don't think I answered your earlier question about a cheap drone that you buy for 20 quid, what you can sure, or yeah. cannot do yeah. with it. So let me address that before we move on, if that's okay. I'm getting, so, I'm getting overheated. I apologize. You're quite right. <laughs> no, we're good here. So... You can buy a drone. So like if you look at these cheap, affordable, I would quantify them as recreational or toy drones. So they have limited battery time. So something you buy for 20 or 30 quid is probably going to fly for a few minutes, maybe four or five minutes around your house to maybe take your pictures or in your backyard. So those are the kind of things that you can do with it. But any commercial application, whether it's surveillance, mapping, inspections, those kind of things, you need a more high-end drone. So you will end up spending a few hundred quid, if not a few thousand quid. And then based on the onboard sensors and payloads that you put on there, that exponentially increases the cost. And in terms of what you can do legally, you can use it, like depends on which part of the world you are. And in some countries, drones are still banned. In some cases, there are limits to what you can use. In some countries, they don't want you to have a camera on board or get special approvals. So it varies from region to region. So I can legally fly, like for example, uh, we can talk about US. Part 107 is what people know. It's, it legally allows me to fly a drone for commercial purposes with, within visual line of sight. And with waivers, I can fly for beyond visual line of sight. Now I can always fly a drone for recreational purposes in my backyard and in, in any other appro approved area without having a commercial Part 107 license. I can just fly it for fun. And similarly, in UK, you can also, as long as you have approvals and you want to fly it, visual line of sight in approved areas below a certain altitude, I can uh, typically below 400 feet, which is called low, low altitude airspace, you can fly it there. Hopefully that gets to the point you are trying to get to. Sure, with your uh, there are plenty of regulations, that's great. But uh, in terms of uh, the amount of drones we could end up with in the air on a commercial basis, uh, mostly because those are the ones that are actually going to go any distance from what you say. I'm just wondering how we actually manage the traffic. It's not as if you can have a, a bunch of traffic lights stuck up in the uh, <laughs> uh, in the air. And, you know, there is serious risk of them either crashing into each other or worse still, a manned aircraft. 
you are exactly right and that's one of the reasons our company was formed because it's it's a different world if you have one drone in the sky at a given time but today there aren't that many drones uh, flying simultaneously in the sky primarily due to regulatory framework and safety concerns but eventually the day is going to come where you're going to have hundreds of thousands if not millions of drones in the sky and you have to maintain safety of the national airspace system. You have to ensure that the drones don't go bumping into each other. They don't go bumping into airliners or flying into buildings and stuff. So to your point, uh, there are no traffic lights in the sky, but there is this concept of creating these virtual highways in the sky and then making sure that the drones that are flying are staying in those virtual highways in the sky. And that's what a company like ours does, which we make what's called a UAS traffic management or a UTM system, which helps you Manage, create these virtual highways, plan these missions that are safely separated and track them for conformance to the plan and these highways. And if an off nominal happens, if a drone is supposed to go from point A to point B and there's another drone going from point C to point D and they're crisscrossing their paths, how do I make sure that they are separated in space and time in four dimensions? So this, our system takes care of that. And as they are flying, if there's an off nominal, it went off course and it, we have a flyaway. How do I notify the relevant folks, which may be airports, other stakeholders, or other drone operators in the area? So how do I notify them there's an off-nominal so protective, preventive measures can be put in place to address those situations? And in terms of your question around the privacy, which you had asked previously, privacy is a very sensitive topic, just like security and privacy, they kind of go hand in hand. But when we talk about privacy per se, I like to use an analogy. So drones are relatively new, but satellites have been used for capturing aerial imagery for many decades. And in many cases, there are satellites up there that have captured much higher resolution imagery than a drone would capture, an off-the-shelf drone would capture today. And people are, uh, that information is available to the relevant folks right now, but people don't complain about it because you can't see those satellites in the sky. Right, privacy becomes a little more talked about topic because you can see these drones buzzing over your head. But there are other folks that have access to that data already. Do you want to sound as confident as my interviewee in this episode? If you talk to the press or other media, are you worried you'll be misquoted or they'll just publish their story and not yours? Clapperton Media Associates can help with coaching. Drop me a note, guy at clapperton.co.uk, and we'll arrange a time for an exploratory call. Now, back to the podcast. You mentioned earlier food delivery. I can imagine drones having an impact in that, um, especially if there's a second wave of coronavirus, which we hope there won't, but I could see they would have some application. I'm just wondering what other applications we can expect to see in the near future. Uh, things like Amazon packages turning up delivered by a non-human. Is that science fiction or is that actually happening in places? What can we see, expect to see in our daily lives in the near and long-term future from drones? We are seeing in the near term what we call as experiments and pilots or trials where all these concepts are being evaluated, where I'll be delivering just your regular packages, not food, uh, but necessarily packages, your daily essentials kind of stuff. So we are uh, like starting in a couple of weeks, we are going to be running some operations in the country of India in two states where we are going to be doing uh, daily essentials delivery in and around the city. 
in actually two cities along with our partners. And that will help feed into a broader regulatory framework that lets it happen at scale. Personally, I believe that we will see medical related beyond visual line of sight deliveries happening at scale before we see food and other daily essentials getting, uh, before I actually see food getting delivered uh, at scale. So your medical, whether it's blood samples or medical supplies getting delivered to remote areas. And I see a lot of that stuff happening in not necessarily dense urban areas, but more in suburban or rural areas. I, we see that happening uh, in the midterm. And in long term, we'll see it happening uh, at scale across the globe. And you also have to factor in where, which part of the world or not, which area, geographical area are you doing it? Because if you go to certain parts of the world, it's dense urban population, there's dense urban areas. So a drone landing on your doorstep, even though technically that may be possible, but there are other safety concerns, people around it and stuff. So if you're trying to do a drone delivery in midtown Manhattan, it's probably not recommended with everything going on. So you may have this mixed delivery option where it's not coming to your doorstep, but it's coming to a kiosk or a central landing location. And then you have a runner carrying the packages rest of the way, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Uh, the notion of delivering drugs, of course, does raise the issue of security. If I'm on medication, then there's one thing I want, and that's to get my medication, nobody else's medication, and for nobody to intercept my medication. But I was talking to somebody about drones a little while ago. He, uh, he was also in America, like yourself. He lived in a rural area. And he was half joking about the idea that, you know, if he had his gun out there, which he uses to protect his livestock from uh, from pests and foxes and whatever, uh, and uh, he saw a drone flying overhead, he might decide if it was carrying food or, you know, he wouldn't know what it was carrying. But to try and shoot one or two or three of them down just to see if there was anything nice for dinner or, you know, maybe a nice new speaker or something uh, in it. I know it sounds very flippant, but uh, what's to stop people actually deciding to target drones to steal property? the fear of going to jail uh, primarily because in most of the it's the, I mean, of course it's illegal uh, yes yeah, they, it's illegal. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah so there's nothing like you can't stop a rogue actor from doing what they want to do uh, that's how crime starts right so uh, but it's against the rules so anything flying as per the regulations right now is considered an aircraft even if it's unmanned and shooting an aircraft is illegal that means if you're, you would go to potentially go to jail for that. So, but again, from a technical point of view, is there technic, is there a technical solution in place that would stop someone from shooting down a drone? No, there isn't. It's just the legal overlay that we have around the globe right now. Security is one thing on a national basis, of course, but I'm just. I'm wondering how we reach an international consensus on what's allowed and what's not because if you're landlocked the one thing about drones is they could go o over borders without the, uh, the the controller knowing it i'm just wondering what sort of national uh, international frameworks there are in place and i believe you're actually working on them yourself what needs to happen is harmonization because like any other young nascent industries things start sprouting around the globe and different people have different ideas and they come up with capability and at the end of the day when critical mass starts people figure out oh sh shoot i created something that doesn't work with what's created here and we are not interoperable we are not harmonized and that's exactly if you look back 20 years 20 25 years when the telecom industry when the cell phone industry was relatively young and i came from the telecom industry so that's why i love this analogy so uh, i would buy a cell phone 
say in UK and go fly to Japan and my cell phone would stop working. It's because back then we had different cellular standards. We had something called GSM, we had something called CDMA, we had some other standards elsewhere. So when you move from one geographical region to other, sometimes it would work, sometimes it would not work based on the technology deployed there. And then eventually you had these standards organization in the telecom world called 3GPP, 3GPP2. And eventually one of them won the battle and eventually everyone had to forklift to a stand, single standard. So now we are at a point with 3GPP and LTE and 5G is where you pick up a phone from London, you go fly to US, your phone will work. You go anywhere else, your phone will continue working because the standards are the same. Same, we have to look at, learn from what has happened in the past and not make the same mistakes again. So from a harmonization, international standardization point of view, we need to make sure whatever is being built is interoperable because eventually you'll have cross-border operations and there'll be similar security concerns, similar interoperability concerns and privacy concerns. Yes, there'll always be a regulatory overlay specific to each nation because each nation is a little bit different, but the common underlying technical framework needs to be the same. So outside of what we do as a company, I also work co-chair ASTM, which is a stand, one of the standards organization, which is building standards for the U.S. industry. I co-chair the U.S. traffic management working group there. And I also sit on the board for an organization called Gutma Global UTM Association, which our focus, and we bring in all the stakeholders together there. We bring in the air navigation service providers, the regulators and industry all into one forum from around the globe so we can harmonize and come up with solutions and capability that creates an interoperable harmonized solution. And uh, to what extent are governments cooperating with this? I, I can't imagine that uh, they'll be prioritizing this massively at a time like this when everyone's panicking about, well not panicking, but quite reasonably very occupied with COVID-19. Yeah, so, so uh, different parts of the world are at different place in that. Uh, so what I talk about is I talk about innovation, uh, experimentation, and then operationalization. So there are different countries. Some of the leading countries have gone through the innovation experimentation phase and now are moving to operationalization. There are some are now beginning to experiment and innovate and try these things. So uh, there are some governments that are leaning forward, some that are trailing, that are coming along. So all governments are looking at it. All governments are working on their national drone policies and regulations. Some are ahead, some are behind. And all of them realize the ones that we are in discussions with and we have seen. Some of them started off with using that same analogy where I said with telecom creating their own thing. And then they realized, hey, no, there is a need for standardization. And we see a lot of them pivoting now towards supporting the standardization, supporting global harmonization. And we are seeing that paradigm shift gradually over the over time. On a more practical level, I'm just wondering about our culture, our working lives. What should we expect to see in terms of changing jobs and indeed the training either we or the next generation are going to need uh, to take advantage of this new world? And what sort of timescales are we looking at? So it's, it's like, you know, every decade or two, we need to retool the work for, workforce. That's what it boils down to. Technology changes, new technology comes, and we have to get used to it. So with this new advent of this technology, it's uh, just like when the smartphones were introduced, we didn't know the scope of what all was possible there. And with the app store and the app revolution, 
there are so many new industries and so many new segments that have come up. Similar stuff will happen in the US industry. Right now, we have just scratched the surface. We are just coming up with a few use cases that we talked about earlier. But as things go about, there'll be plenty of opportunities as we transition from these small US to bigger US, maybe uh, Jetsons happening, like flying cars and unmanned air, uh, urban air mobility, those kind of things happening. Uh, and experiments are already happening there. So you'll need people from an operations side, you'll need people from a flight management side. And even like eventually when you have these uh, rooftop airports or what's called vertiports, there is this whole ecosystem that needs to evolve with it. That means there are going to be tons of different skill sets and jobs required. And a lot of people can start transitioning towards that. And in terms of the time scale for that, the small US revolution is already happening. The passenger carrying, cargo carrying stuff, that's happening over the next, say, five, 10 years and will start scaling. So I think it'll be the crawl, walk, run stuff where things will gradually start transitioning over the next three to 10 years. Okay, and finally, uh, now that you've given away our age by mentioning the Jetsons, uh, perhaps uh, you <laughs> tell us uh, where people can find out more about yourself and your organization. People can learn more about us by visiting our website, uh, flyandra.com. That is F-L-Y-A-N-R-A.com. Uh, or they can look me up on LinkedIn or anyone from our team. Excellent. Amit Ganju from Andra, thank you very much indeed for joining me. You're welcome, guys. And many thanks to you for listening. That was the Near Futurist podcast with me, Guy Clapperton. Don't forget to have a look at the website at nearfuturist.co.uk or my media training site at remotemediatraining.com. I'll be back, as always, in two weeks' time.